This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning. Uh, my name is Jeff Heiser. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. We, as Ronnie said earlier, we're so glad to have you guys with us, particularly if you're visiting. Uh, right now, we are in the book of First John, and we're going to be looking at the second half, the kind of the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three. So, if you would turn there, um, but well, I, I kind of want to give you a sense of what's going on here, what we've been covering. First uh, John, it's named after its author, the Apostle John. We've been kind of saying that it's a sermon letter, which means that it has elements of what, like a sermon, what a sermon's like, and it has elements of what a letter's like. It's kind of both. We're not exactly sure how to categorize it. But basically, it is uh, the Apostle John addressing this group of churches, and he's telling them he, he, they need some encouragement about their faith. They need some encouragement that they are truly saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and John wants them to know with certainty that they are. Now, um, I don't know if you guys have heard about um, any of these personality tests that have kind of taken the world by storm the last few years, like the Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram. Well, the Enneagram is kind of having its day in the sun right now, and um, I, finding myself sucked into the craze, was one day reading about my personality, the particular weaknesses of my personality type on the internet, and one of them like really stuck out to me and has kind of stuck with me. This is what it said, that my particular personality type, according to the Enneagram, says that I tend to have this deep-seated little voice, this fear that I'm a bad person and a fraud, okay? So I might be doing good things, but if people really knew me, they would know that I'm a fake, that I don't, like, that the whole thing's a farce. It's just a face that I'm putting on. And that, that actually, actually rings somewhat true, but, and how do, you, how do you think that that interacts with my faith? Well, it actually interacts quite powerfully, and it, it's, I, I tend to have this little nagging voice that says, yeah, you don't really believe, do you? Yeah, you're kind of just faking it. You're going through the motions. Your dad was, a, your parents were Christian, so you're a Christian. You know, it's a good life, so I do it. You know, there's this little voice like, are you, re- you're not really saved. And I read First John, and he says to his readers that he wants them to know that they have eternal life. This is in First John chapter 5. We're not there yet, but he says he wants them to know that they have eternal life. And I think, yeah, that's impossible. That's not going to happen. Or he says like he does in the first, couple, the first verse of our passage today, he says, abide in Christ, remain in Christ. And I think, yeah, that's unlikely. That's not going to happen, Okay. And according, you know, that maybe this just has something to do with my personality type or something or my particular weaknesses, but my guess is that many of you, whether or not you have my particular Enneagram, whatever, you experience some of that same fear yourself that maybe you're a, a fraud, maybe you're a fake, maybe your faith isn't real, it's just a face that you put on. And what John wants for people like you and like me, if that describes you, what he wants is he wants you to know with certainty the love of God. 
and to know, to be assured, to be certain that our, of our salvation by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is what we're going to talk about today. Encouragement from the Apostle John that God loves you. So if you're willing and able, let's turn to our text. Um, please stand with me out of reverence to God's Word. Um, we're going to be reading John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. And while we read this, I want you to kind of look for one simple thing. I want you to, to, to how does John describe the relationship between God and us? That's the question I want you to ask of the text. How does God, John describe the relationship between God and us? Okay, hear now the reading of God's Word. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His com- coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure." Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning." The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will abide forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. Okay, how does John describe the relationship between God and us? If you look at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he describes us as a family. God is the Father, and we are his children. The Father and the children, those are going to kind of be our two controlling, that's going to be our two points today, the Father and the children. We're going to dig into what those things, um, what it means that God is our Father, and what does it mean for us as his children. So first of all, the Father. In 2012, a social scientist named Amy Cuddy did a TED Talk um, about some of her research that seemed to indicate that this, that you could kind of almost manipulate your experience of the world depending on the body postures that you had. So she is particularly interested in what she called power poses, which are like, you know, you put your hands on your hips or behind your head or up in the air, these sorts of these sorts of things. And it's what confident people do. They take up more space in the room, right? And it like, and that's, that's what they do. They're like big, they fill up space. And so what she, through some of her research, seemed to indicate that if you um, actually are not confident, but you adopt some of these power poses, 
then you could kind of manipulate yourself into having the confidence that confident people have. So, for example, um, you know that like nervous anticipation that you have when you're like going to go into an interview or maybe when you're going on stage or something, that nervous anticipation? She, she actually argued that when you're riding in the elevator up to the office where you're going to have this interview, you could just kind of adopt a power pose, you know, whatever, and for about 30 seconds. And when you'd walk into the room, you'd have a lot more confidence and that kind of nervous anticipation would, uh, it would kind of regulate that a little bit, okay? And then, of course, you'd be more likely to get a job. Now, that nervous anticipation, you, you know, we, we Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven, and he's going to come again on the last day to judge the living and the dead. Now, the question is, how do you feel about Jesus coming back? Do you have that sense of nervous anticipation that you might have going into an interview, like, I hope this goes well, like, am I going to pass, like, is he going to like me, am I going to get the job, will I make it? Do you feel that? I know I certainly do, like that nagging voice, that nervous anticipation is real. Well, in Luke chapter 15, Um, Jesus tells this parable, the parable of the prodigal son. You guys know this parable. It's the most famous parable of all time because it's so wonderful and beautiful. You have a father whose son comes to him and says, Dad, I know you're still alive, but I want my inheritance now. And of course, his father, he gives it to him, and the the son, he he runs off and he spends all the money on all manner of vices, you know, booze, women, gambling, you name it. He does it all, and he just blows the whole um, the whole pile of money. And, and it gets so bad for him. He, he is so destitute that he gets to the point where he's, he's begging for food, and finally he finds a job feeding pigs. And the job pays horrendously, so bad that he's looking at the food that he's slopping to the pigs, and he's saying, man, I wish I could just afford some of that. Like, it's really bad. And he, of course, then has this moment of epiphany where he's like, oh, my, like the servants that work for my dad eat way better than I am right now. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go home and just say, Dad, I know I don't deserve it. I know I like, insulted you, blew your money, everything, but please, can I just be one of your servants because I need to eat and you can almost imagine him on that road home, and he's, you know, the miles are ticking away, and he's getting closer, and that nervous anticipation starts to set in of, ah, is he going to accept me? How is this going to go? Will I get the job? This is a man that I have insulted, that I've rejected, that is, huh, how is this going to go? But of course, that's not how the story works out. The father He sees him a long way off, and what does he do? He picks up, and he runs to him, and he embraces him and kisses him. You see, there was no need for that nervous and fearful anticipation because the father loved his boy. You see, John wants for his readers and for you and me not to feel that like nervous and fearful anticipation um, of like going on stage or going into an interview. He doesn't want us to feel that, but instead he wants our anticipation of Christ to come back, coming back to be more like 
a loved one coming home. You see, uh, Cecilia and I were just traveling last week, and my dad picked us up from the airport, and what's the first thing that he does? He gives me a huge hug, and he tells me that he's glad to see me. He's so glad that we're there. Like, there's no, there's no nervous, and like, what am I nervous about? My dad loves me. Like, how much more does our Heavenly Father love us? He's our Father. You see, we live in an age in which um, love is transactional. Like, as long as you give me what I need in terms of fulfillment or affirmation or enjoyment or whatever, then, um, then I will continue to love you. Like, uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours sort of thing. The Atlantic has this, um, it has this article, this uh, column, reg- somewhat regular column called Dear Therapist. Like you write in to ask questions about your love life and stuff. And um, I saw one just two weeks ago. This is what the headline said. Dear Therapist, I divorced my dying wife once she was no longer lucid. That's the headline. And of course, the, he goes on to describe his wife's um, Huntington's disease and kind of the subsequent, um, it just tragically, it, you know, destroyed her brain and her body. It was, it was bad, really bad, like a very difficult situation, no doubt about it. Uh, but he decides to divorce her and um, because it's just, it's like crushing him to some extent. And you read that and you're like, man, that's really bad. Um, probably shouldn't have divorced his wife. But what's interesting is the therapist's response. This is what, I mean, the, right, this guy's son, he's like totally, he's like, what are you doing, dad? Terrible decision. Of course, his in-laws are like, are you kidding me? You're de- what? It's just, no one's on board with this. But the therapist says um, on this, in this column, you might face some people's disapproval, but you deserve to care for yourself in whatever form works best for you. What she's saying is that in order, for, in order for love to be worth it, his needs must be, being met, must be met, right? Otherwise, he's justified in leaving that relationship. And our culture is just obsessed with this like radical individualism or, you know, self-creation. I can be whatever I want to be. I can free myself from whatever bonds that aren't satisfying me or whatever. No restrictions, no limits, But there's this glaring problem with this worldview, and that is children. Because you can't just liberate yourself or free yourself from your children, right? That love is not, the love that you have for your children is not transactional. You can't say to your kids, hey, listen, like, I need to care for myself in whatever form works best for me. And so you're really, I need to liberate myself from feeding you three times a day. It's driving me nuts. So you're going to have to get out. Sorry, you got to move out. We're done. Like you can't free yourself from the love of your children. And in a culture that is so like radically individualistic, unheard of extreme individualism, somehow we're still committed to our children. How much more is our Father, God, committed to us? If the world around, like, of course, he is committed to us. He can't just jettison his children. Look at verse 
1 there of chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Do you see at the, right at the beginning of that verse where it says, what kind? That phrase, what kind? Well, that's actually one word in the Greek, and it could actually be translated, how great. That's actually, I think, how the NIV translates it. Um, how great. And what John is saying is how massive, how incomprehensible, how inconceivable is the love of God, our Father. And He assures them that they are the children upon whom that love is fully bestowed. He says, and so we are. We are children of God. Listen, when Christ comes back, there's not going to be this cosmic scale of like, you know, where God weighs your good and bad deeds. Like, hey, you know, did you, did you plateau five times in your Christian life because we only allow four? Sorry. No, that's not how it's going to… God's not going to be asking questions about how good or bad. He's going to say, were you my child? Were you my child? And if you are, then you can have confidence when He appears, the confidence that John is talking about in verse 28. You will not shrink from His shame as His coming, because there is no shame when a father who loves his children runs to them and embraces them and welcomes them home. You see, John wants us to have certainty in our salvation. He wants us to have rest in our salvation, not because our faith is pure or that we're not a fraud. We are, but because of the greatness of the Father's love for us. You see, John, okay, John has been describing up to this point the love of the Father, and now he kind of turns to the children. So, Father, now we're turning to the children. What characterizes the children of such a father? Well, it's that they'll be hope-filled and that they will be purified. There's this theological concept that uh, we really need to, that we, it's really important to wrap your mind around if you want to get at the fullness of, like, just the riches of God's Word. And this concept is called by theologians the already and the not yet. So, the already and the not yet. And what this basically says is that there, there, in the Bible is full of promises of God, right, that have already come true, but their fullest expression has not yet happened. So, for example, Jesus comes, and his first message, in the, uh, the first things he's saying in the Gospel of Mark, he says, like, the kingdom of God has come, right? It is already here. And yet, we look at, read the book of Revelation, and we realize its fullest expression has not yet come. Do you see that? The already kingdom of God, the not yet, that which is to come, the fuller, more perfect, uh, the like bigger expression of that, more completed expression of that. Now, we see that same dynamic here in verse 2. So, he says, beloved, we are God's children now. This is the already. We are now God's children and, this is the not yet, what we will be has not yet appeared, okay? What John is saying is that absolutely we 100% are God's children now, but our experience of that 
love of the fatherhood of God, their experience of that, and in fact, our ability to live as children, there's a fuller expression that is coming, right? There's more that is down the road. And what's really interesting is in this concept of the already and the not yet, it is the already that is the guarantee of the not yet. So we are already God's children now, and that status is the guarantee that we will see him and be like him. Not yet, but promised and made certain by what is already true. You see, when we talk about hope, biblical hope, we're not talking about like uncertainty and desire, like I hope the Cardinals win the World Series, which after last night is looking more and more uncertain, right? Um, Biblical hope is that we live in light of a certain future. And so John is saying that God's love, God's love for his children, our status as God's children actually gives us certainty. It gives us hope of that which is to come. Certainty of a guaranteed future. You see, God's Children are full of hope because our stat, our very, the very fact that we are children of God guarantees that which is to come, that we will see him, that we will be made like him, that we will know or see our father face to face. So we are hope-filled. So that's in the future. What about today? You see, John believes that um, the children of God, they'll not just be characterized by hope, but they'll be characterized by a purification process now. Um, One of the fascinating things about the Bible is it doesn't um, ask us to do anything that we're not already doing, which, bear with me, don't throw me out. What it asks us to do is to reorient the things that we are already doing. So, for example, um, David Foster Wallace, he's widely considered one of the greatest um, authors of the 21st century. Um, He was once asked to give a commencement speech, speech, a graduation um, at Kenyon College. And it's not your typical commencement speech. This is what he says. He says, um, here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. You see, David Foster Wallace is like, he's he's not Christian, he's not religious, he's not interested in Christianity at all, and yet he is tapping into a a surprisingly biblical truth that everybody is worshiping. And of course, the Bible doesn't say, stop worshiping. It says, reorient your worship to God. Stop worshiping the created things and worship the creator, but keep worshiping, just worship the right things. It's not something new that we're not already doing. 
But if we can actually take David Foster Wallace a little bit deeper, um, what he's saying is that the places in which we find our value or the places in which we find our identity, they shape who we are and how we act. It's inevitable. And the Bible doesn't say, hey, stop letting your identity shape who you are. No. It says it gives us a new identity. And then, of course, this new identity shapes our actions. It is inevitable. It's part of being human. We all do it. The Bible just, and John particularly, just wants to reorient those, that identity-shaping thing, all right? So that's why John says, if you look at verse 9, he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. What he's saying is that if your identity is found in being a child of God, and in his great love for you, that identity will shape who you are and your actions. It will shape you to being like him. It will shape you in righteousness. It's inevitable. We're all doing this. But if you read that passage carefully, it might seem kind of harsh because John says things like, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And you might say, well, hey, I keep on sinning. Does that mean that I'm not a child of God? Well, thankfully, no, that's not what it means. <laughs> thankfully, otherwise we'd all be done. Um, but instead, um, if you actually, if you look um, at chapter 1 and chapter 2 of verse John, we, that's actually, it can't mean that, because if it did, we'd be contradicting what he's already said, which is that we all sin. But instead, um, and this is kind of, we, we want to be really careful with this, but if you turn to verses 4 and 8, they will give us a kind of clear sense of what John is after when he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, or verse 8, everyone, whoever makes a practice of sinning, what John is actually speaking about is those that make a practice of habitual, unrepentant sin. You might put it another way, that John is talking about the, those that make a habit out of living out of their former identity. Right? The quality of our lives betrays something about where identity is found. And there is certainly a warning here. Right? There's certainly a warning, but I actually think that what John is doing here is offering a promise. That as you and I begin to lean into our, the status that we have as children of God, that as we begin to lean into the certainty of the Father's love, that certainty that John wants you and I to have, if we do that, then we will begin to see over the years through a process victory over our sin. That if we can actually lean into the Father's love, that He will begin to make us like Him. He will begin to shape us in our new identity. It's really, um, that's what John's after. Is He wants us to lean into that and to hold on to that promise that God will make us like himself. Okay, I'm really running out of time here. Um, I want to make one final observation. 
Um, do you see there in verse 29, right at the end, and also in verse 9, it's there as well. John talks about being born of God, that phrase, born of God. Well, John is actually using language that Jesus himself used. John, of course, he didn't just write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He also wrote the Gospel of John and Revelation. Um, well, in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, you have this story of Nicodemus, this Pharisee, right? He comes to Jesus, and he's kind of trying to figure out what's going on in Jesus' ministry. What's the deal here? And Jesus um, tells him something that is really puzzling to him. He says, he says that he must be born again. He calls Nicodemus to be born again. And what Jesus is talking about there is he's saying that he must have a new family. Not like a new biological family, but a new spiritual family. He must become a child of God, a child of the Father. And Nicodemus is like, whoa, what? It's, this is new to him. And he says, well, how? How in the world can these things happen? How could this happen? How could I become? How could I do that? How could that happen? And Jesus, this is how he responds. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's speaking of his crucifixion. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So to be born of God is to have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And to have been adopted into the family of God is to be forgiven by him. You see, John says there, if we go back to 1 John, our passage today. He says in verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Listen, we can be children of God only because Christ came to take away our sins. Any security that you have, any security that you have is not found in any sense, like perfect sincerity or the fact that you're not a fraud or that you, you, know, you have this flawless, doubtless faith or something. The only certainty that you can have in this life, any assurance of salvation, any rest in Jesus Christ is because he died and rose again to purchase you to be sons and daughters of the king. That is the only certainty. And that is the certainty that John offers to people like you and, to, and me who are certain that we're frauds and fakes. What do we do with that? Verse 28, abide in him. Remain in him. Remain faithful to the one who has been so faithful to you. Know that you are the child, children of God. A father who loves you incomprehensibly, immensely, unconceivably. Not because your, per, you know, your faith is perfect, but because Jesus Christ died to purchase you as his very own. Amen.